All right. Well, my name is Jordan. If I haven't met you yet, I'd love to. Uh, one of the pastors here, and we are in the middle of this. We're actually we're toward the end. This is a transitioning, uh, really toward a conclusion. In the book of Ecclesiastes. We've walked through uh, this book so far and uh, encountered a lot of hard truths and deep truths, and and sometimes even a little bit of a dark uh, um, reality as we as we have let Solomon, King Solomon, um, teach us about the meaning of life, and so. Um, if, you've, if you've been around with us, you know that we've looked at, at things like pleasure, uh, doesn't satisfy. We've looked at things like money, doesn't satisfy. Your job, doesn't satisfy. Um, f- you know, competing with other people and trying to, you know, keep up with the Joneses and get this and get that and all these things. He, he calls it all vanity, uh, like a vapor. You can see it. You think it's there, but as you try to grasp it, it slips through your hands. And so uh, we're transitioning now toward the, to the end of the book, and, and, and you see... The way that uh, and I, and we're going to sh- we're going to um, skip a little bit um, in, of chapter ten. We're going to focus a little bit different today. So we're actually going to focus on on chapter nine, one through um, about fifteen or so. Um, but but you're going to see some of these things are, are repeating, and some of these things he's he's sort of summarizing, and then adding in final points or or final considerations for us to really apply these things. And we said last week, as you're hearing repetitive things in Scripture, that shouldn't lead you to boredom, but actually a deeper reflection. That should lead you to think, okay, God's saying this more than once. Have I heard it at all? Have I applied it at all? Uh, there, there's there's an intentionality to that, and so there's themes, there's big themes wrapped up in this, and 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 so you could see that he says, okay, as I laid all this to heart in chapter nine, verse one, as I as I took all this in, examining it all, okay, so he's done this huge experiment, this huge like life experiment, with more means and more ability and more. Uh, money, more pleasure, more power, more wisdom than any of us could ever dream of. He's tried life, and, and as he's, and he's made some conclusions, but he's saying, okay, now as I lay all this before me, how's it going to affect my life? How am I actually going to live going forward? And I think that's the, the question for us today is, okay, we've heard these truths. We've heard uh, the, the, the truth that these things won't satisfy us. We've heard these truths. He's going to, again, bring us back to this reminder today that, that we all die. Okay, are we going to let that, that reality of death coming inform how we live now? We've talked about this book is, is sort of living life backward. One of the commentaries I've been using is called that, is titled that, in, in looking at the end of life, where we're headed, and what we know about that, and then reverse engineering our life now to, to live appropriately. And so, so today, he's really going to encourage us. It, it's actually a, a, a bit of a brighter text than some that we've looked at in the past. He's going to start with wading back through some, some of the, the frustrating things about life, but he's actually going to teach us how to enjoy life. That's really going to be the big, uh, the big summary, the big uh, point for today, is that because death is inevitable and because life is unpredictable, we should live life, the days that we have, we should live it to the fullest. That's actually a bit of a different flavor from Ecclesiastes and, and some good news. And so um, we're going to dive in today and, and see what he says. We're going to walk through this somewhat quickly for the first and the last part, and we're going to settle in on the middle uh, just a little bit more and really try to apply what he's telling us about enjoying life. So to get us there, though, he's going to sum it back up. He says, I laid all this to heart. 
Verse 1 of chapter 9, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are all in the hand of God. He says, we don't have control over our life. It doesn't matter if we're, if we're good people or bad people, wise people. Like Ultimately, God holds it all in his hands, and, and we don't have control. Whether it is love or hate, man, man does not know. Both are before him. It's the same for all. Since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who doesn't sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil that is done under the sun. And the same, that the same event happens to all. What's he talking about? He's talking about death. He's saying, this, this is so frustrating. Once again, I want there to be a formula where I could say, if I do this and then I do this, that'll mean this kind of life. And some of you, that's, that's why you're at church. Life's not going well for you. You realize that, okay, I don't have this figured out. I need some wisdom beyond myself. I need some help. And so maybe that's why you're here. I'm glad you're here. But the, the, the wisdom and the word from the Bible might actually surprise you. Because it's not about do this, do that, and then you'll have this kind of life. He's saying it's actually not predictable. There, there's, 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 there's good people that suffer the evil person's death. We saw this previously. And here he's just kind of summing it up. He's going, here's the deal. Like You may have been the good student that, that went home and studied all night and, did all, and took all your notes in class. And, and, and you, you, know, you followed along. You read all the assignments. But guess what? The kid who did zero assignments and copied off you both end up in the same place, right? The person who, you may be the person who goes above and beyond at work, who never breaks the rules, who's always five minutes early and, and always does everything on the list, even if it you know, doesn't appear to need to be done. And, and, and guess what happens to the, the person who never does anything they're supposed to do? And maybe they even lied about you and caused you to lose your job. Guess what? Both end up in the ground. Both end up with the same Fate. And so he's saying, this, this is a frustrating reality that keeps bringing him back to this place of, okay, what do we do with life then? What do we do with this frustration that it's the religious people and the irreligious people? It's the people who are doing good and evil. They all end up in the grave. They all end up dead. This is an evil, he says. And the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. Here, he's diagnosing the problem of humanity. This is not new uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes. This is probably not new if you've been around the journey, but here's what he's saying. Your problem is not that you need to just get a little bit better at life. Your problem isn't that you're just not really organized, you're not really disciplined, and, and, and if you just had these things in place, then you would have a, the, you know, a, a life that you long for. We, we talked about how, man, life's just frustrating. One of, the, like, one of the most healthy, kind, godly men I know that ran marathons ended up with lung cancer. Like, that just doesn't add up, right? Like, why? Like, there's no explanation for that. And so Solomon's reminding us, hey, your problem isn't that you're, you're mostly good and then you need a little bit of help getting over the edge. So maybe some self-help books about time management or money or these things will, will get you there. He's saying, no, no, your problem is that you're evil, your problem, the diagnosis of humanity, is actually that you're, you're full of madness in your heart. You're, you're full of sin. That, that's the issue before us. That's the issue inside of us that leads to all the other issues in our life. It, it's not that we need some self-help. It's that we need absolute redemption because we are completely and totally depraved. That's what he's saying, is that the, the heart of man is, is full of madness. That it, it will lead to this perpetual search that never ends up finding what it's looking for in, under the sun. 
He says, you, you can go to all of these things. You can get all of these things under the sun, and it will lead you to still be empty. Why? Because what is leading you to have a longing in your heart is the absence of God. It's the absence of a relationship with God. You were made to be with God. That's what fulfills us. That's what fuels us with joy. And our sin, our evil, separates us from God. And that's the diagnosis. It plays itself out in a thousand different ways. Right? You may not be the same kind of sinner that your family condemns or our society condemns. You may not be the same kind of sinner as those people that you turn up your nose at, right? So we do that, don't we? We kind of categorize, well, I mean, you know, I'm not like those people. I mean, I know I struggle with some things. I'm not perfect, but I'm not fill in the blank, right? Whatever that despisable, you know, despisable lifestyle is that, that you and your family kind of scoff at, like, at least we're not that, right? And, and so we sort of look at, at, the, at the world in that way. So, and, and that's kind of, and then we feel better about ourselves based on where we categorize ourselves in in the world, and we think, okay, I, I'm not here, so I, I feel okay. And I'm not quite there, but maybe I could get there. And, and, and this catches us up in this perpetual hamster wheel that the reality is Solomon's saying, hey, I've been here. The highest you could dream of being, as far as power, money, influence, fame, fashion, pleasure, I've been here. And it turns out I was no better than the person who was down here when it comes to standing before God. He's saying, that's the issue. So you may not be the type of sinner that you scoff at, but you are still nonetheless a sinner. And when we compare ourselves before God instead of other people, when we do a vertical comparison, okay, what's it going to be like when I stand before a holy God? That's what really tells us who we are. That's what really tells us our greatest need. It's not looking horizontally at how much better am I doing than the other person. So that's the diagnosis, and that tells us a lot about the solution as well about the treatment. And the treatment is that we need God. We need a redemption. We need a savior that can fix that problem. We don't just need a little bit of doctoring up. We don't just need a little bit of do better. We need complete redemption. And so he's, he's, he's pointing that out and he's saying, um, okay, you need to let that reality inform how you live now. Because the theme of Ecclesiastes is there's nothing under the sun that will satisfy you. And we only have a short time on this earth. So if you spend your time trying to get something out of the materialistic things of this world that they are not able to give you, then you've wasted this life. And so he's actually going to shift now to helping us realize that, okay, the, the our biggest issue is our heart, and, and the only solution to that is Jesus. He's our, he's our Savior to come and redeem us and to set us free from this pursuit of fulfillment here on earth and, and give us something that transcends this world, okay? And we focus on that a lot as Christians, but, but then we, we kind of don't know what to do with this world sometimes after that. Like, okay, do we just try to, okay, because we weren't worthy of Jesus, uh, but now he's received us, do we, do we just kind of deny ourselves? Kind of what, what one author called, we, we, we do holiness by subtraction. We don't want to allow ourselves any pleasure. We don't want to allow ourselves to enjoy anything because we're not worthy, and we kind of shift into this woe is me thing. But, but in reality, what the Bible's teaching, and particularly this text, is actually a little bit challenging for me, if I'm being honest, because I, I tend to, to lean more on Jesus calling us to give us, to give his life, to give us, to give him, our lives, right? Like self-sacrificing. Like we need to 
turn over our lives fully to him. And if he calls us to go, we go. If he calls us to, to leave the safety of our, of our home and go and be missionaries, then we do that. If he calls us to open up our homes and adopt and foster kiddos at whatever cost, we, we do that. And, and that is good and right. And that's all over the Bible. You can't escape those the, the, the challenges and the invitation because of the greatness of the gospel and the way that he loved us, he calls us to love other people with that same kind of radical love and promises that that's actually where we'll get fulfillment is giving our lives up for other people instead of trying to use other people to get our life fulfilled. But at the same time, there's this tension in this text where he's saying, yeah, we should live for eternity. We should live for the next life. But this life right now, is a gift. It's a gift. And there's things in this life that are gifts. And we need to learn to enjoy them. That we don't let all the other pressures and all the other chaos suck the life out of us so much that we're not able to enjoy life. So he's saying, you need to take an honest look at where you're headed and then live your life. Like seize the day and do what you're called to do. Do what you long to do. Live the life that God has put before you. We're scared of this theology, and rightly so, because there's a lot of pastors, a lot of preachers that only preach, hey, live your best life now. God wants you to prosper. He wants you to be happy, healthy, and wealthy, and all you got to do is, is, is give and come, and, and he'll do those things for you. And we want to push against that theology, because that is not what the Bible says. Jesus says, come follow me. I don't, have any, I don't have a home. I don't have a place to lay my head. You might not either. Uh, it may cost you your life. It may cost you your friends, but come follow me, and I'll make you the most joyful person that you can imagine. So we want to push against that. However, we also want to hold the, the, the fullness of Scripture in tension and say, listen, that doesn't mean that we don't enjoy the life that he's given us here. That doesn't mean that we don't live life well. And that's actually what he's going to teach us through the rest of this passage. So here, here, he goes on to say, not only is our hearts, the, the, of the, or the hearts of the children of men full of madness and evil, but then after that, we go and we die, all right? So he says, but he who is joined with all the living, verse 4, has hope. So he says, we're all headed toward death, but the people who are still alive, we, 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 there's still hope for us. And he says, I love this. He goes, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. It's a weird passage, isn't it? But think about it. If you've got a choice between being a lion or a dog, what would you want to be? Well, you want to be a lion, especially if you're going to fight, right? Like the lion can take the dog, obviously. I know he's a cat, but I mean, I don't like cats either, but it's a particular kind of cat, like, right? It's the king of the jungle. Like, it's, it's a lion, y'all. Like, um, and some of you are struggling because you love your dogs. Um, they don't love their dogs in this culture. Dogs are scavengers. Dogs are filthy. Dogs are like not house pets that people snuggle with in this culture. They're, they're filthy, skinny, scavenging nasty, mean animals. And, and, and so Solomon's making a point here, saying, yeah, yeah, I know that you've longed to be a lion. I know that you're, you have your sights set on this kind of life. But the reality is, if you get all of that stuff, you earn that salary, you buy that boat, you get that house, you have that retirement, you have that property, you have that trip, you have those vacations, but then you die? What, what good is that? Well, good is that? He's saying, it's like the, the dog who's alive has more to offer than the lion who's dead. Yeah, I know he's a lion, but he's dead. There's no good there. So keep this perspective in mind. He's saying th this should matter. For the living, verse 5, know that they will die, but the dead, they know nothing. 
They have no more reward. Their, their memory is, of them is forgotten. Their love, and, uh, their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And forever, they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. That's super important to keep in mind that Solomon is given a, a, a philosophical answer to the meaning of life, looking at things under the sun. You'll see that stated that helps clarify what he's talking about. It's hard to know exactly all that, that Solomon knew about heaven and the promise of the afterlife. But it's safe to say that he knew that, that God was going to reward. He believed in a resurrection and God was going to reward. But he's talking about, if we're looking at this from a materialistic thing, if we're looking at this just from what is life about here on earth, he's saying, man, people who are dead, they've lost their opportunity. The, the clock has ran out. If you're, you're, sports analogy, like there's no more time on the clock. There's no more opportunity to, to participate, to do what, what we have an opportunity to, to do here on earth. So yeah, we know that we have a reward beyond this earth. We, we know that there's, there's some, there's some uh, fine print to add on to what Solomon is saying here. But we shouldn't use that to minimize what he wants to do with us here while we're still here on this earth. And, and, and really, here's what he's saying. Death has a clarifying value to it, doesn't it? Like, when death comes or is about to come, it all of a sudden puts everything into focus in our life, doesn't it? We talk about deathbed conversations. We talk about what we're going to regret in those moments, what people have said in those moments. Because when you realize that your time has run out or someone you love, their time has run out, all of a sudden, everything that, that, that you thought mattered, that you've spent so much time on, you realize, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, right? Like, I, it doesn't matter anymore. Like, and the things that, that do matter, you wish you'd have done more of, right? Like, we use this idea of like, okay, you know, we're never going to wish we would have worked more or never wish we would have, you know, done, uh, fill in the blank more, but we're going to wish we would have done more with our family. We wish we would have taken those trips. Like, we're going to have regrets. And, and what that's pointing in there, we're going to have regrets here on this earth if we, if we don't take Solomon's advice because what he's saying is when we're faced with death, it has this clarifying and focusing ability to snap us back into reality and to show us what really matters in life. And the wise person will ask themselves the question, when it's my turn, right? when I'm there, what will my life have been worth? What will they be saying about me at my funeral? Like These are questions that Solomon wants us to ask. And he, and he wants to drive it home and go, okay, listen, if you knew you were going to die tomorrow, you knew, how would you live today? Anybody singing Tim McGraw yet? Went skydiving, Rocky Mountain climbing, 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu. It's famous, like, this song, it gets to us, and, and, and you get it. Like, the guy gets diagnosed with cancer or whatever the story was, and, and it frees him up to live his life differently, right? It, it frees him up to see what's important, and, and it frees him up to, to, to pursue the things that he had been putting off, the, the things that he, they, he had, you know, said he didn't have time for or weren't worth pursuing. Okay, now what matters matters because I see that I'm headed toward death. Like, it has this ability to sober us up and inform us as to what matters. There's a... Um, 
I forget the author's name, that wrote a book called uh, Disguised in Grace, and, and, and he lost his family. He lost um, several of his, his wife and, and I think two or three of his kids, or maybe just one of his kids, but he, uh, he talked about how it actually moved them to this place of, of, it says, rawness and utter bewilderment is where we were, have given away to contentment and, and deep gratitude. His story turned out to be redemptive, not only for me and my children, he says, but for other people as well. And, and he says this, this strange thing about the tragedy of losing, uh, it was his, uh, his wife um, and <clears throat> his four-year-old daughter is, is who he lost, and he had some other kids that survived the car crash. And, and he says that this tragedy has actually turned into something redemptive for not just him, not just his kids, but actually other people. And, and as strange as it may sound, he said, this is uh, Gerald Sitzer. The book is called A Grace Disguise. He says, as strange as it may sound, I wish that every man could experience what I have, though without the acute suffering. He says, I, w- I wish everybody could get where I am and have the focus on life and the, the ability, the deep gratitude and perspective on life without having to suffer the acute loss and pain that, that I've suffered. It, it, it has this ability to put things in perspective. And this is what Solomon is saying is, listen, you need to go there. You need to think about that. And you need to let death do its job and lead you to ask these questions. Let these questions sink in. If you knew you were going to die tomorrow or in the coming weeks, how would you live differently now? Don't let life slip away from you chasing things that won't be remembered. This is Solomon's point. Like, we can, we can let the pressures... Um, of life, right? Pressure, we can let life pressure us into pursuits that aren't ours, right? Some of you are doing things and you're not even sure why you're doing them. There's things on your calendar and you're not sure why they're there. You're not sure, do I actually value this or has somebody else told me I need to value this? Like I'm spending all of this time, all of this effort, all this money on these things and, and I'm not even sure I like them. I'm not even sure this is what I want to do. And so you need to ask yourself this question, has life kind of pushed you to the brink of, of, man, we're just busy people, aren't we? We're busy. I, just, just try to hang out with somebody after the service. Try to set a time to hang out. We're busy. Always stuff going on. And it's good stuff a lot of times. But if we're not careful, Solomon says, that busyness will rob us of what God wants us to experience. One author said, God has a bucket list for us. It's probably different than your bucket list. And actually, the truth of the gospel frees you from your, your, the fear of your bucket list because if you don't get to the Grand Canyon, you don't get to see the Alps or Niagara Falls, listen, you'll get to see them in the new heaven and the new earth. And I don't know what it's like. I want to think we won't have to like, drive there. I want to think there'll be like a teleportation type of situation. That's just me. I have no biblical basis for that, but that's my hope. Is I can go see those things, I can just be like, all right, beat me up, Jesus. Let's, Grand Canyon, right? Like, totally not. Like, you don't say your preacher said that because I don't know, but I'm just hoping, right? But, you, but there'll be, the, like, this, this world is going to, like, the volume and the clarity and the focus gets turned up. It doesn't get thrown away. Like, this world will not, you won't be at a loss and, and have your regrets when you get to heaven, about things in this earth that, that you missed out on. But that doesn't mean that there's not stuff now in your life that he has for you to do that you shouldn't miss out on. 
And he's going to lead us to, to think about some of those things. He's going to lead us to, to, let, to, th- to ask this question. If you knew your time was short, how would you live? And actually answer that. I know you're used to hearing stuff like this, but the Bible wants you to think about it and apply it. James says, don't be a dummy. Don't just hear the word. That's foolish. Don't just hear the word and not do it. Do it. Apply this. So let Ecclesiastes inform your life. Because you know how it ends, let it inform how you live until it. So what good is it? What good is the things you're pursuing? If you knew that you were dying soon, would you still be doing the things? Would your calendar look the same this week or in the coming weeks? Would your budget look the same? And this isn't permission to like go all prodigal son and just spend in, you know, like this isn't permission to go outside of your means and just go, you know, Whatever, it doesn't matter. It's not fatalism. This is like stewardship of the time that you have left. Some of you are unable to do the things you've actually dreamed about doing because you've let the pressures of life get you in such debt that you can't. Solomon say, stop waiting to make a plan to get out of debt and make a plan to get out of debt so that you can be freed up to live the way that God has called you to live. So this is God actually telling us to enjoy life, but sometimes we don't know how to do that. Sometimes we, we don't know how to actually apply that. Like, we, we, you know, we don't know how to actually enjoy life because life has been, like, done to, like, we've just experienced life as it's come, and we've never really been one to set our own agenda and, and to say, okay, this is what God has called me to. This is how I want to spend my life. And this is how our family is going to set up our calendar and our time. And so that's Solomon's point is let this reality shake that fog, look death in the face and address your life accordingly. But then some of us, it's bigger than that. We don't know how to enjoy life because we didn't know that we were allowed to. Some of us don't know how to enjoy life because we don't know that God wants us to. Some of us were raised in, in, in cultures and in Christianity and churches that, as I said earlier, were kind of a holiness by subtraction thing, thinking that, okay, the way that we uh, respond to Jesus and his, his good news is to deny ourselves all of these you know, pleasures and, and we, we sort of like borderline monk it and we, we don't want to enjoy life too much or whatever. And, and, and we don't know how to actually enjoy God's good gifts. Verse 7, he says this, go. Eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. This isn't the first time that we've heard Solomon tell us to go enjoy our, our, mood, our, our, our meal. That's meal and food together. I'm trying to think if I had too much coffee or not enough this morning. I think it was not enough. But um, this is not the first time he's told us, hey, like, life's crazy. Don't forget to enjoy your meal. But there's actually another word there that, that says, don't just like enjoy it because you got to eat three times a day, so make the most out of it. He says, go. Be intentional about enjoy. Like, go make a plan to pursue joy. Enjoy the good gifts that I've given you, right? There's an intentionality to it. It's not just a begrudging acceptance of this. He's saying, go make plans to enjoy your life. Enjoy your food. Enjoy your drink. Do it all with a merry heart, for God has approved what you do. Like, Here's the deal. Sin has jacked up this world. But that doesn't mean that there's not still good for us to enjoy in this world. Like God made this world, and I don't know if you remember, he said it was what? Good. 
really good. Timothy's going to teach us, or Paul's going to teach us later through the book of Timothy, like, don't, like, don't reject things that God has given us as a gift by acting like we're holier than God. Don't, don't like, no, we, we, if we can realize it's a gift and accept it as, as such, then, then we're free to enjoy it within God's parameters. So he, he's, he, he is a God who wants us to enjoy the gifts that he's, he's put before us. He said, let your garments be white. Verse 8, dress up. Right? There's, there's sackcloth and ashes that, that these people would use whenever they're in mourning, when they're acknowledging their sin. But the, the idea of white is to reflect the sun, is to look good. Like, get dressed up. Let, let, your, let not oil be lacking on your head. Put some cologne on, put some perfume. Get dressed up. Go out. Enjoy life. Verse 9, enjoy life with a wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that has been given unto your son. It's like earlier in the book, that idea of vain life sounded like a negative, didn't it? But he, he's, he's redeeming it. He's saying, hey, you don't have all the time in the world. It's just a, it's an adjective about our life, saying it won't last forever. And you can't get something out of it that it doesn't own, but you have God now. So enjoy your life, enjoy your wife, enjoy your spouse, enjoy the, the people that are in front of you, the people that he's given you. Because this is your portion in life. And in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Like, this is part of what our job is, is to enjoy the people that God has put in our life. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with, with might. Like, do life intentionally. For there's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which where you're going. He's saying, once you get to the afterlife, like, it, it's, again, you got to clarify a little bit of what Solomon's saying. He's forcing people to look for God. And we know the rest of the story is, there, there is redemption. There is more to do. We're not just going to have this boring, like, disembodied, fat baby angels in diapers playing harps existence in heaven. Right? Heaven is, the, is, is earth redeemed. Like, that, that's where we spend eternity. So it will be physical. He says, you know, wipe every tear from our eye. Like, that's a physical tear. Like, so that's where we're headed, and we'll, we'll get to that in, in just a moment. But he's saying, enjoy our Life. So here's, here's what he's telling us. is Listen, God is a God who wants us to enjoy the gifts he's given us. How many of you uh, grew up with a dad who said no to everything? Maybe he didn't even say it. He just grumbled. You know, I don't know. Or maybe it was a mom. Shapes how we view God. And Christianity gets a bad rap because all people know is the things that we're not supposed to do. Oh, yeah, you've you got to be a Christian. You can't, you know, can't do this. You can't do that. You, okay, you've got all these rules. Read the Bible. Read the first part of the Bible. What you see from the jump is that God's a God of yes. Do, do you know what the garden was? It was a rich paradise of yes. How many of you... you, you parents get tired of your kids asking you this question. Can I do this? Can I do that? Can I have a popsicle? Can I have this? Can I have dessert? Can I have a cookie? Can I whatever? Right? It's exhausting. You're just like, I don't know. Just leave me alone. I'm like, trying to use the bathroom, whatever. <laughs> God's a God of yes. We, we know about the no. He has regulations. He has rules. Like he, he says, don't go here. We, and we know about that in the garden, right? Don't eat of that tree. But guess what? He said, Go enjoy all of it. I gave it all to you. It's awesome. Like God's excited. Like there's a joy. God has said, man, this is good. 
Like he made this stuff and he's like, this is awesome. Like, go, enjoy, check it out. Like, this is, this is a good gift. All of it. The food, he, he, he gave it taste on purpose. He didn't have to do that. He gave it color. He didn't have to do that. He gave us pleasure within our intimacy, within our marriage. Like, he didn't have to do that. Like, this is a good God saying, go enjoy these gifts. Go enjoy what I've given you. And sometimes we, we forget that and we don't know how to actually enjoy the life that he's put before us. And one time um, in high school, uh, me and my buddies, we were from Pope County in the rural area, and there wasn't a lot of uh, options for girls. Like, we had to ask our parents if we were related before we dated somebody just because <laughs> it, it could get weird. I'm not even kidding. We were real close to Kentucky down there. Uh, but it, it, I'm not. So we would travel to Harrisburg, to the big city of Harrisburg, to, to, uh, to try to find girls. And, and that's where I found my girl, actually, is in Harrisburg. But, uh, but before that, uh, we, we would just go. So one night, we were at uh, Harrisburg's homecoming, their football game. And uh, one, of the, uh, one of our friends... A uh, mutual friend of my wife and I had, uh, had borrowed a car for the court. She was on the, the homecoming court. She was the queen candidate or something. And, um, and she borrowed a car from a neighbor, a friend or somebody. And it was a really nice, souped up, like, uh, BMW convertible. And she was like, hey, uh, does anyone know how to drive a stick shift? And I was like, <laughs> me, pick me. And she's like, I just need somebody to drive this home. I'm like, I'm all over it. Like, let me at it. Like, and so I'm in this car. I don't know this guy. I, don't, I still don't know who owned it. But I'm like, this is amazing. I've never been like, in a car that costs this much. And I'm like, there's all this power. And like, I'm just like, excited. And, uh, and I'm like, okay, she just lives like a half mile from the football field. I got to find, like, I got to, like, I can't, I got to drive this car, right? Like, I can't just put 10 miles an hour down, like, back to her house. Like, this, this car deserves to be driven. But I'm like, I don't have permission. So, so what am I doing? I'm trying to find a way to enjoy it without permission. So I'm like, okay, I could just go right there. But maybe I got to turn right out of the parking lot. I better go down the highway. Like, I better just be, you know. So I'm like, how can I enjoy it without really being seen and exposed and, and getting in trouble? But I still want to enjoy it, right? I want to turn, turn a tire, let, let the rubber squeal a little bit. I want to, you know, I want to get it out of you know, third gear at least. I need to get some, some speed under me. This, this, this car deserves to be driven this way, right? So I did. I just went around, you know, I went down the highway and I went around the back way or whatever, and I did what I could without feeling like I was going ob- above and beyond. And, um, you know, get there and they're like, hey, what, you know, what took you so long? I just, you know, got stuck in some traffic, homecoming traffic, you know. But anyway, some of us treat life like we're in that car and we're not really supposed to be enjoying it. And we really don't have permission because God's really just a cosmic buzzkill that's waiting to catch us having fun and discipline us. When in reality, God is, is totally different than that. God is the God who, who gives us the car. He gives us the earth. He gives us our relationships and goes, no, no, it, it's good. Enjoy it. Take her for a spin, right? Can you imagine the difference if you just giving that car and saying, hey, I'm going to be gone for a week. I don't want to sit in the garage. Just enjoy it. There's a different posture. There's, we're not on edge. We're, not, we're, like, we're just able to go and enjoy that gift. But when you don't really have permission, you don't know what to do. But here's the deal. Life is a gift that God has given us. He says, go. Enjoy eating a good meal and drinking some good wine and do it with a merry heart. God has already told you it's okay. You don't have to apologize for that. 
Put on some nice clothes. Enjoy life. Don't let, like, don't let oil be lacking on your head. Don't just, woe is me. No, live a good life. Sometimes we just don't operate out of that because we don't, we don't, we don't know that God is a good father who likes to give good gifts. Think about it as a parent or as anybody. And when you've given a gift to somebody, and you know that they're going to love it. You love to see them open it, don't you? It's a great moment. But what's even better? When you see them enjoying it. Right? Like when you see people you love enjoying a gift that you gave them, it, it brings you joy, right? Church, that's our God. He's not watching the clock when you're enjoying your life and wondering when you're going to get back to the serious stuff. He's smiling, yeah. It's awesome, isn't it? Those relationships, it's awesome, isn't it? That sunset, it's, it's cool. I worked on it for you. Like, like those stars, it's amazing. Like, he, he's, he's honored and glorified by our enjoyment of him. So that changes our approach to God and to life. Like, this is what Solomon is taking us to see that, hey, without God, this life will just leave, leave you frustrated and empty. But once you get God, you can enjoy this life, and it's awesome. It won't look like the world tells you it should look. You may be called to go and give your life to serve in Iraq or in, you know, the jungles of, you know, South America and Africa, like, and, and preaching to indigenous peoples, that doesn't look like the American dream that you were told will satisfy you, but he's saying, no, no, it, it's actually better. Enjoy your life. Like, do what you're called to do. Like, shirk off this, this frustrating schedule and pain. Like, some of you have dreams that you've never allowed yourself to acknowledge that are actually from God. Because you got other stuff to do. This may mean selling your house or your BMW, I don't know, like to free up budget space because the, here's the deal. The BMW doesn't actually fulfill you, does it? And neither does having a family and neither does having a job that you love. Here's what fulfills you. When you realize that, oh, God has given me this life. He's my fulfillment. And nobody can take that from me. And now I see these things, whether it be a BMW or a nice home or a trip or vacation, we see these as gifts instead of something to be gained. It changes our perspective on it. When we see the things of this world as gifts rather than something to be gained, then we can enjoy them as gifts. We can enjoy them rightly before the God, before the God of the universe and not have to apologize, not to worry about it because he has blessed us with them. So he says, hey, go and have a good meal. Go have a good date. Go have a good time with your spouse. Plan that trip with your family. Get your life in order. Do what you need to do to make sure that you can live the life God has called you to live. This is... This is the difference between the things of this earth being idols and gifts. Because when, when we take good things that God has given us and we turn them into ultimate things and we try to pursue them as, as something that will satisfy us, that becomes an idol. So maybe your kids, maybe your spouse, maybe your job, 
may be that car. When you think that that is what's going to satisfy you, that becomes an idol. And, and C.S. Lewis says it, it actually, it, it's no longer love that we feel toward that thing. It actually is this really complicated form of hate because we're trying to get it to give us something that it doesn't have the ability to give, so we get bitter toward it, but we want more of it, and it twists it all up. But when we see that, oh, the, the gospel frees us from that because the gospel says, hey, yeah, this world, it's a gift, but it'll never fulfill you. Come to me. Come to Jesus. Surrender your life to him. Make him your treasure. That's the picture of the, of the gospel is, hey, Jesus says, th- this is like a treasure that a guy who's in a field stumbles upon and sees the, the worthiness, the beauty of it, and goes, man, i got to have that, and I'm going to go and sell everything I've got so I can buy this field so I can have this treasure. It's worth that. I'll sell everything else because that is so rewarding, so amazing, so beautiful. That's the, the gospel of the kingdom, and when we get that, now we're no longer susceptible to depression whenever we lose our stuff. Why? Because we got our treasure in heaven. This is back to Sermon on the Mount. This is back to, this is what he's going to say in the last part of chapter 9. He says, I've seen this example of wisdom, verse 13, under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with a few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it with great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered the poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than the weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. I think you could translate that to Jesus saying, hey, put your treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy. And when the storms come, your joy is not susceptible to the destruction that this world can bring. Put your treasure in heaven where the world can't get to it. And now you have a wisdom that is far greater than the strength and the power and whatever the, wor- the world has said, you've got to have this, or look at me. I, you know, saying the wisdom of, of a quiet life lived, knowing what God has called me to, knowing that what's most valuable is the family in front of me, the life, the calling in front of me, not possessions, not material gain, not fame, not whatever, but what's right here. The person who's learned to be content with the gifts that God has given him has more wisdom and has more uh, hope and influence and more security than the people who seem to have it all. I want to end with this, uh, more words from C.S. Lewis. And uh, this is from a commentary, and, and he says this. I find it interesting that verse 7 through 10, it's full of wedding imagery, right? So did you see that? It's talking about food and drink and, and, uh, and white garments, right? Everybody's dressed up. There's, there's perfume and a husband and a wife, right? That's because the Bible's picture of the, the, the best that life can offer us is simply a foretaste of the wedding banquet that is still to come, the beauty and the grandeur and the glory of which we cannot put into words. Here's the deal. Like, the good things that are here on earth are given to us by God, and they are just a glimpse and a foretaste of what he has to offer us in heaven. If you trust Jesus, you may lose uh, out on some of the pursuits you think you need to have here on earth, but you will gain a hundredfold, he says, in heaven. And these good glimpses, these things of, uh, of goodness are just glimpses and foretaste of that. And, and, and so th- this idea of redeeming these 
earthy things like our, our marriages and, and food, it's not just about the future. Like Jesus, he says, Jesus literally ate his way through the Gospels. And he did, didn't he? Jesus always eating with people. Right? What's going on with that? Like Jesus is showing us that this is all leading us to something greater. Every meal is a foretaste, an appetizer for the banquet that is yet to come. And then he quotes from another guy who wrote a commentary on Ecclesiastes called A Table in the Mist, which is, I wish I'd have named our series that. It's just so, uh, it's just, it just captures the essence of Ecclesiastes. And he says this, We eat and drink as we vanish from the earth like a vapor. But one day we will eat and drink in the city of the king where death will have vanished from the earth forever. I'm going to read that again. It's so good. He says, We eat and drink. It... <clears throat> We eat and drink as we vanish from the earth like a vapor, but one day we will eat and drink in the city of the king where death will have vanished from the earth forever. Revelation 21 says that he will wipe every tear from our eyes. At the end of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia series in the book The Last Battle, he talks about how we're not just entering into, and this is him painting a picture of heaven, we're not just entering into this spiritual like, disconnected world, but rather a, a physical and, and what he calls a, a deeper country. And so he says the, the, the children and the animals move from the old Narnia to the new Narnia, where they will discover that every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. And listen to this quote from the book. He says, it was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forehoof on the ground and neighed and then cried, I, I've come home at last. This is, this is my real country. I, I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all of my life. Though I never knew it until now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. Come further up and come further in. This idea of what we're going to experience in heaven is, is, is greater degrees of satisfaction of the gifts that he's given us here on earth. So don't forsake them. Don't forget about them. Ask hard questions like, what if I only had a short time to live? How would I change? What if you knew your spouse, the people you loved, only had a short time to live? How would you change? It, and listen, we could, we could stop and, and camp a lot on that idea of, of your spouse and marriage. And, and I think it's worth noting who's saying this. Who says, enjoy life with the wife whom you love? This is a guy who wrote the Song of Solomon as a young man, and it's a beautiful picture of love, isn't it? If you've read the Song of Solomon, these are, these are people deeply in love with one another and enjoying one another as a young married couple. But if you know, you, you read the rest of the story, Solomon gets off track and ends up having 700 wives and 300 concubines, or 300 wives and 700 concubines. It's a lot of women. And, and it become, that women become a physical only situation to him. But guess what? He's saying it was vanity. It didn't satisfy me. If I, it, he's, he's saying if I were a young man who had to do it over again, I would enjoy life with my wife that I love because I messed it up. So listen, don't wait to get help. Stop holding a grudge against your spouse. Stop acting like you're too good for counseling. Enjoy your marriage. It's a gift from God. Life is too short for you to hold on to stuff. It's too short for you to act like you'll get better at it tomorrow. Get some help. Enjoy your marriage. 
plan a date, plan a vacation with just your spouse. Like, enjoy your spouse. Figure it out. It's worth it. God says so. Okay, now back to the big picture as we wrap up. He says, back to this picture of Narnia being something, you know, deeper in and further up from what we know of this earth. He says, those without Christ often abandon themselves to eating and drinking because sometimes it looks as if that's all there is to do before we die. He says, people who don't have Christ in their life, sometimes they go, man, all right, like, dust coming, I might as well just eat and drink. That's all, like, I get what good I can out of this. But those who love Christ cherish eating and drinking because it looks a little like what we will do after we die. The gifts are from the real country. They smell and taste and feel like home. So that feeling you get when you eat a good meal. That's a glimpse of heaven. The feeling you get when you do enjoy your spouse and you're intimate in your bedroom, that's a glimpse of heaven. The feeling you get whenever you look at your kids, you look at your family, you look at your home, and, and it just stops you for a moment. I, my, my girls were sitting on the couch with my wife last night, and I walked in. Uh, from the bedroom, and I just stopped and smiled at them. They're like, why are you being weird, Dad? I'm like, it's just one of those moments that just struck me. Like, wow, that's my family. Right? You just have that smile. That's that's a gift from heaven. Those are gifts from the real country. That's stuff that, that we should be longing for. So ask the hard questions. If I knew my time was short, would my calendar still look like it does? And if not, make the adjustments. Live for the kingdom and enjoy the gifts that God has given you. Okay? That, only, that idea of living and seizing the day only works if you have Jesus. If you're hearing this as the Bible says, hey, just seize the day, get what you can, well, you've missed the point. This is coming in a context of nothing will satisfy you except for Jesus. You get Jesus, you have a secure and transcendent hope that nobody can take from you. And he says, okay, now that you got that, enjoy this life. Enjoy your wife, enjoy your food, enjoy your home, enjoy what I've given you, enjoy this world. But if you think you'll get fulfillment out of just doing those things, you're going to mess it up. You'll turn them into something that you can't actually enjoy because they become an idol. When you worship Jesus, they can become gifts. So do the work. Actually sit down as a family and go, okay, if we knew we didn't have much time, what, what would we do different? How do we need to change our life, change our calendar, change our budget, change our priorities and actually do the work? If you don't know Jesus, you can meet him today. There's no, you don't have to get this figured out and then you can, he'll accept you. No, he says, hey, right where you are, I see you, I know you, and I love you, and I gave my life for you so that you could be saved, so that I could come to where you are in your mess and pluck you out of it and put you on a firm foundation. So if you need to trust Jesus today, if you don't yet know him as your savior, that's the biggest need that you have in your heart. That's the biggest need that you have in your, in your life. We would love to introduce you to him today. We would love to pray with you. Let's pray. God, we, uh, we need your help, as always, processing your word, that it wouldn't just be something we hear only, but that we learn to do, that we learn to apply, that we learn to receive. So I pray your spirit would come and do that all across the room, knowing where each of your people are. And, and those that don't know you yet, I pray you would give them the faith to, to step forward and trust you today. I pray that you would save souls, that you would set our hearts free, that you would help us to realize you're a good God who's given us good gifts. 
Help us to be free from the shame of religion or um, undue burdens that have been put on us by other people. Help us be free from our schedules and the things that keep us from living the way that you called us to live. Help us to enjoy the life you've given us and that that would be a witness to the world that shows that we have a hope beyond this world, that that allows us to speak the good news of the gospel into our neighbors, our coworkers, and our friends. So come, Lord Jesus, your spirit is welcome here. Do your work in this place. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.